God's Word and see what we can learn from it today. It's always something to learn from the Word of God. It doesn't matter if it's a passage. I tell you what I've been studying this past week. I'm not preaching it today, but I've gone back to John 3.16. You can learn something from John 3.16 every time you go to it. See, that's, that's the thing about the Bible. It's a living Word. And... Uh, it's also the only book you'll ever read where the author's present with you while you're reading it. You run across something you don't understand, all you got to do is ask him. You run across something you, you struggle with, all you got to do is ask him. Ah, yeah. I love the Bible. I love studying the Bible. And John, I mean, you take passages. We, we have a danger. If you've been in church all your life, been in church any length of time at all, you have a danger of, of just bypassing those simple everybody knows them verses you know and uh, it's good every now and again to go back to them and study them again lord will show you new things he'll show you different things and he won't necessarily show you new things that'd be new to you but i promise somebody's already seen them why because proverb or ecclesiastes tells us there's nothing new under the sun so we know that but uh, anyways, I tell you, it's a blessing to be able to study and read the Word of God. Romans chapter 9. This morning, if you found your place, let's stand in honor and reverence to the reading of the Word of God. I'm going to read five verses here in chapter number 9 and look at them for a few moments. The Bible says here, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all, God blessed and God blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I need your help this morning, Father. I need your help preaching this message that you have given me. God, I pray that we would all be sensitive to you today, Father. I pray, God, that you would unction me from on high, God. Give me the words to say, Father. God, I pray that you would get our flesh out of the way for a while and that we would all just listen intentively to the words today. God, I pray that we would get some help out of them, Father. I pray, God, that you would do a work that only you can do, Father, from your word today. Bless us and help us, God. I pray that you would stir our hearts today. I pray you would save that one nearest hell. I pray that you would reclaim that backslider this morning. Father, help us to get serious. Help us to get a sense of what we are to do as Christians and where our burdens should be, Father, and our focus should be. I love you, Father. Thank you for this day. Thank you for these people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. Thank you for standing. You can be seated this morning. It's been a little while since we've been in the book of Romans, and here and there, as God has led me, we've been preaching through the book of Romans on Sunday mornings, and, and we've actually went through the entire first section of the book, which would be chapters number one through chapters number eight. And in Romans chapter one through chapter eight, Paul thoroughly convinced us about man's need and God's glorious provision in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. 
Now that you go to Romans chapter 9, though, or this, this next section of Romans, chapters 9 through chapter 11, Paul deals with the problem associated with the condition of Israel. What does it mean exactly that Israel has missed its Messiah? What does this say about God? What does it say about Israel? What does it say about our present position with God? Well, the Jews were God's chosen people. And by the way, they still are. They were the apple of God's eye. And by the way, they still are. Uh, They have a special place in God's plan. And uh, Deuteronomy chapter 14 verse 2 tells us, For thou art unholy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. So he set his people to the side. He set the children of Israel and uh, he set them aside. He, He separated them from the rest of the people of the earth. And when God sent them his son, though, they failed to receive him. They rejected Jesus. They crucified Jesus. God set Israel aside. And in AD 70, when Titus attacked Jerusalem, the temple was destroyed and the Jewish people were scattered. And so uh, when when you talk to a Jewish person, when you see people of of Jewish uh, faith, religion, you'll find that you can talk about God all day long. The problem is not God. The problem is Jesus. They do not believe in Jesus. Uh, Famous, and and I appreciate what he is doing in the realm of conservatism and and standing up for uh, things that are right. I really appreciate uh, men like Ben Shapiro. And uh, we need people like that in our news media uh, to keep a balance. And, and I appreciate what he does, but you don't want to listen to him talk about religion. He doesn't believe in Jesus. He is Jewish. I've heard him talk about his faith several times. I've heard him in interviews. He was uh, interviewed even by John MacArthur and uh, for a lengthy time. And the man, he believes in God all day long. He believes in doing good. He believes in doing right. He believes in keeping the law, but he does not believe in Jesus. And he'll say that. And so um, that's a problem because the Bible tells us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And uh, if you're not uh, going to heaven through Jesus, you're not going to heaven. It doesn't matter what you believe. You can believe in God all day long. You can, uh, you can even uh, worship God. You can, you can uh, obey all of the law in the Bible, which is impossible to do. But if you miss Jesus, you miss it all. And so that's what happened with the Jewish people. They, they, they believe in God. They kept the law. But when Jesus came, they rejected him as their Messiah. And when this happened in Romans chapter 11, uh, the Bible tells us in cha- uh, chapter 11, verse 7 through 10, Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David saith, Let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened, that they may not see, and bow down their back always. And so here's the thing. The plan was... That Jews were God's chosen people and they still are, like I already said. 
But when they rejected Jesus Christ, something happened. Something very important happened. And we see it in Romans chapter number 1 verse 16 where Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You ever wondered why he wrote it like that? Why the Bible says that? It's because it came to the Jews first. And when the Jews rejected Jesus, and it opened up the Gentiles to be, you know, when, when, when the Jews rejected the Messiah, God began calling out a Gentile people for his bride. That's not saying that we have replaced the children of Israel. There's men that preach that and teach that, believe that. That's not uh, what you'll find in the Bible. What you'll find is that uh, Gentiles now were accepting of the Messiah while the Jews as a nation were rejecting him. And so it's important to understand who were the Gentiles. The Gentiles was anybody that wasn't a Jew. Well, what about today? Well, if you ain't a Jew, you're a Gentile. It's still the same way. Let me just make it easy. Everybody in this room is a Gentile. All right. And so... The Jews were God's chosen people, but now they've been set aside. God has not turned his back on them. God has not, yeah, no, he's not turned his back on them. That's the best way to say it. I don't know why I keep trying to think of a better way to say it. But he's, he's not turned his back on them. He set them to the side. And so the Jews were God's chosen people, but now they are set aside as God is building the church. Did God fail to keep his promise to Israel? No, he hasn't. Is God done with Israel? No, he's not. These very questions challenge God's character. If God was unfaithful to Israel, how do we know if he will be a, how do we know if he'd be faithful to the church? You see, these are all of the, the things that come to your mind when a man preaches and a man teaches that God turned his back on Israel. He didn't. He's never broke a promise. He's always kept his word. And you say when you believe things like that, it, it, it allows doubt to enter your heart. Well, if he, if he turned his back on Israel, can he turn his back on the church? Well, no, because technically he did not turn his back on the Jews. He set them to the side. And, 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 and y'all ought to know, going through over a year worth of studies in the book of Revelation, we know he's not done with the Jewish people. And so these issues, though, is what's being addressed in this section of the book of Romans, chapter 9 through chapter 11. And Paul's heaviness, though, I, I want to give you all of that as, as context of where we're looking at and what's going on. But what, what I really want us to understand here, notice, is Paul's heaviness concerning the spiritual blindness of Israel. It overwhelmed him. We find his burden for them in these first five verses of Romans chapter 9. And we get a glimpse into Paul's heart here. And what we see is that he had a soul winner's heart. He had a soul winner's heart. And that's what I want to preach on for a little while this morning. I want you to notice in verse number 1. I want you to notice right off the bat, we see the honesty that is declared he says here, he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. 
See, Paul was accused of being a traitor. He was accused of being a liar. He was accused of being a deceiver. He was accused of being a blasphemer. See, here's the thing. All, all lost people, uh, but especially the Jew, uh, have looked with distrust and doubt at the message of the cross. When it comes to Jesus, they reject him, and they reject him wholeheartedly. As a matter of fact, I've heard missionaries, I've heard uh, several people say that, and there's several missionaries that I know of that are over in Israel and in Jerusalem, and, and they have problems over there. If you get to one section of people and you start trying to witness to them, they will run you out and try to stone you to death when you talk about Jesus. They'll talk about God all day long, but you cannot talk about Jesus. So here's the thing. They, they, they looked upon the message of the cross with distrust anyways, but they really looked at Paul with distrust. You see, think about this. Because of his conversion and ministry to the Gentiles, Paul more than likely had been accused of turning his back on his own people. Who were his own people? The Jews. See, what had happened to Paul at one point in time, Paul was the Christian terminator. He held just as high authority with the Romans as he did the Jews. He was in a special place to be doing what he was. And what was he doing? He was imprisoning Christians. He was killing Christians. He was consenting even into the stoning of Stephen, we find in Acts chapter 7. He was the Christian terminator. Now, Paul didn't have a problem with God. He had a problem with Jesus, just like the rest of the Jews. Until that day on the road to Damascus, God slapped him in the back of the head and made him see the light. That's essentially what he did. <laughs> that's Logat, that's Logat version of, of Paul's conversion, okay? But here's the thing. After Paul was converted, after he became a... I mean, he looked up, he said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? Yeah. And, and, you know, after all of that, Paul became a preacher. Paul went back to witness and convert the same people that he no doubt worked for. And not only that, he disgraced the Jews by witnessing to the Gentiles and telling them that they could receive the grace of God. And so the Jews, no doubt hated Paul. I, I, can, I can say that because they hated Jesus. And so Paul has, he shared a lot of truth. I mean, look at this letter from chapter 1 through chapter 8, and uh, there's a lot of truth. There's hard truth. There's some, there's some encouragement in chapter 8, but chapters 1 through 7 are just bold truth. And so he shared a lot of truth and truth that if taken literally proved that outside of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, there was no hope of salvation. And so that went against what the Jews believed. Paul wants these people to know that he has a heart for them though. And so he wants them to see that he's sincere about what he's saying and that he really does care about them. That's why he calls the Holy Ghost in his own heart to testify to his honesty. He throws it all out on the line. He says, I'm telling y'all the truth. I promise I am not lying. This is real, folks. This is real. Please listen to what I'm saying. And let me just say before moving on, it's vital that believers operate from an honest heart. This world must know that we love them and that we are concerned about them. John warned us about a false love. 
He told us that true love manifests itself in action on behalf of others. 1 John 3.18 My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Why does He say that? Because here's the fact of the matter. Anybody can say that they love. But you know it if it moves them to action. Anybody can say that. Oh, we can always say that. But do we really care? And that's what we're talking about here. Paul was acting in honesty here. He's telling these people, I love you. I want you to know the truth. And so... There's a lesson in that for all of us. We must give people no reason to mistrust the gospel message that we preach. We must never be guilty of saying anything that is untrue or hypocritical to those outside of the family of God. We may be the only hope that they will ever have of coming to Jesus. You never know when God is using you to tell somebody about Christ. You never know it. You see, I, I walked into Dodge City Steakhouse the other night. And, my, and, and what I normally do, the first thing I do, I go to the bathroom and I put out tracks everywhere that I can. And you know, whether I get thrown away or not, you know, if, if somebody were to go up to the bathroom stall and look down and see just a piece of paper that says, are you ready? That might be all that they need to start thinking about things. If they walk in there and look and say, and there's a cross, a picture of a cross, and it says one way, it might be all they need. You never know. On Friday, I went in there and put out several and went back later on, and somebody had thrown them in the trash, but they were on top of the trash, and they made the mistake of not ripping them up, so I took them out of the trash and put them back up and then left. <laughs> You're going to have to rip them up if you don't want me to reuse them. But anyways, uh, you never know, though. All it may take is somebody seeing that question. Are you ready? It might be all it takes. You never know. But we ought to be honest. We ought to be truthful with what we say. So we see the honesty that he declared, but also this is where I'm really going to spend some time at this morning. I know it's almost 12 o'clock, but we'll get through it here. I want you to notice in verse 2 the heaviness displayed. So he was honest, but he was also, he also displayed heaviness right here. Look in verse number 2. He says that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. You see, Paul writes about this great heaviness and continual sorrow he has. Now, that's interesting. The word heaviness carries the idea of grief. He's grieving over these Israelites. He's grieving over their rejection of the Messiah. He is grieving over them. He wants them to be saved. He wants them to go to heaven. And it carries the idea of grief. But now that word sorrow, that word sorrow carries the idea of anguish. And distress. Anguish and distress. On top of all the torment and grief, we are told that it was continual. That word continual, we all know it means unceasing. This was something that Paul could not shake. 
He couldn't get out of it. He couldn't get away from it. It was a continual sorrow. It was a great heaviness. There was constant grief over the fact that people were lost and going to hell. When I think about that continual, when I, when I look at that continual sorrow and I think about that word anguish, we don't hear a lot about that word. We don't hear a lot. Some of us may not even understand what anguish means, but I'm going to tell you what it means here in just a second. There's a man by the name of David Wilkerson. He preached a message. He's been passed since 2002. But he preached a message called A Call to Anguish. And this is what he said in that message. He said, I look at the whole religious scene today, and all I see are the inventions and ministries of man and flesh. It's mostly powerless. It has no impact on the world. And I see more of the world coming into the church and impacting the church rather than the church impacting the world. I see the music taking over the house of God. I see entertainment taking over the house of God. An obsession with entertainment in God's house. A hatred of correction and a hatred of reproof. Nobody wants to hear it anymore. Whatever happened to anguish in the house of God, he says. Whatever happened to anguish in the ministry? It's a word you don't hear in this pampered age. You don't hear it. Anguish means extreme pain and distress. The emotions so stirred that it becomes painful. Acute, deeply felt inner pain because of conditions about you, in you, and around you. Deep pain, deep sorrow, the agony of God's heart. He goes on to say, does it matter to you today? Does it matter to you at all that God's spiritual Jerusalem, the church, is now married to the world? That there is such a coldness sweeping the land? Closer than that, does it matter to you about the Jerusalem that is in our own hearts? The sign of ruin that's slowly draining spiritual power and passion. We are blind to lukewarmness. We are blind to the mixture that's creeping in. And that's all the devil wants to do is to get the fight out of you and kill it. So you won't labor in prayers anymore. So you won't weep before God anymore. So you can sit in front and watch television while your family goes to hell. He goes on to say, there is going to be no renewal, no revival, no awakening until we are willing to let Him once again break us. Folks, it's getting late and it's getting serious. He said, please don't tell me. Don't tell me you're concerned when you're spending hours in front of the internet or the television. See, we see this anguish that David Wilkerson is talking about. We see that in Paul here. How far did this anguish take Paul? Well, look at the next verse. Look at verse number three. How far did this anguish take Paul? He says, For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. This is astounding. This is astounding. Paul says, if it were possible, 
If it were possible, he would allow himself to be separated from God and sentenced to hell if it would save the lost Jews. That's an amazing statement. Now, he's not joking. He meant it. He knew it was an impossibility. He knew that he was eternally secure in the Lord Jesus, but he was willing in his heart to go to hell in order that others would be saved. That's what he's referring to there when he says that myself were accursed from Christ, that I would be separated from Christ. You might say, oh, preacher, that's, a, that's kind of a stretch that he would wish it. Well, what do you think accursed from Christ means? If I say to be separated from Christ, what do you think that means? What a burden must have gripped his heart. This great passion for souls gave Paul perspective. Lesser things didn't trouble him because he was troubled by one great thing. And that was the souls of men. That was the souls of men. Don't nobody get sideways with me on this. But we need to be serious. Spurgeon wrote this, and I couldn't say it any better myself. He wrote this, get love for the souls of men. I don't want nobody to get mad at me. I'm just telling you the truth today. This is what he said. Get love for the souls of men. Then you won't be whining about a dead dog or a sick cat or about the crotchets of a family and the little disturbances that John and Mary may make by their idle talk. You will be delivered from petty worries. I need not further describe them if you are concerned about the souls of men. Get your soul full of a great grief and your little griefs will be driven out. Amen. Yeah. We worry about so much. And most of what we worry about just has something to do with our comfort or our security or our wants, or our desires. I was listening to a man speak the other day on a podcast, and when he goes out soul winning, I don't have a dog, but I might would, I might would get one for this. I, I love it. I love what he does. I know what I just said about dogs. That was technically Spurgeon, but I agree with what he said. But I was listening to this man speak the other day. When he goes out soul winning, what he usually does, he'll go to a park. He'll go to a big park. And he'll ride around on a bicycle with his little dog in the basket. He's got a little basket in front. And it's so funny because he'll put, he'll put, uh, he'll put sunglasses on his little dog. And he rides around the park with his little dog in the basket wearing sunglasses and let me tell you why he does it. It's, it's a great way to get attention. And he gets attention from people and it opens up conversations. 
And every conversation that he gets into, he starts talking about God. And winds up witnessing to people. And, and you know, it's great. And I'm like, man, I'd love to have a little dog that wore sunglasses. I could go do that. <laughs> but the other day he was talking, and he said he was riding on a new electric bike. And he wasn't used to it yet, and he pulled up to an intersection and he said he had to stop really quick. And he said the brakes on those electric bikes are not like normal brakes on a bicycle or what he was used to. And he said he, he it about threw everything off the bike. He said when he hit the brake, he had to hit it real hard. He didn't realize it was going to be that strong. He was still getting used to it. And he said the front of the bike stopped and everything else started going forward. He said, I about went forward. He said, I about ended up in the, on the pavement. He said, but my little dog, he said, after I, after I figured out what was going on, I looked. He said, to his horror, that little dog had been thrown out into the intersection. There's cars coming by. It's busy. And he said, I ran out. I didn't even think. I just ran. Started screaming and started hollering for everybody to stop their cars. You know, he's like, I could not, I could not, I could not shudder to just think what was going to happen to my little dog. And he said, after the event, scooped his dog up, ran back to his bike, got his bike, went off the, went off the road and, and just sat down in the grass with his dog. And he said that just right afterwards, he said, oh God, give me the love for sinners that I have for my dog. He said, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. When I sat down, I thought, oh, God. He's like, help me to love sinners. And you know, the tragedy of today is this. Believers seem to be able to go about enjoying their salvation while the rest of the world just goes to hell. That's a tragedy. Christian, it is the norm for us to be grieved over the lost. And if we are not, there is something wrong with us. It is the example of Scripture. This isn't the only time that we've seen someone in Scripture say something like this. We find it in we find it with Moses, the great leader that God appointed to bring his children out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 32. In verse 31 and 32, this is what we find. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, listen to what he says, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. So we got Paul, we've got Moses. Jeremiah was the same way. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, like Paul, he was broken over the lost. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Oh, that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. 
He's referring to the lost people of Israel, just as Paul was, just as Moses was. Consider our Lord Jesus Christ himself. As he stood brokenhearted over Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. He had sorrow because of the way the lost children of Israel was behaving. Here's the thing, if we as believers can go through life with little or no concern for the lost, there is definitely something wrong with us. We need to stay focused on our mission. Let me ask you, church, how in the world, how in the world can we truly believe in a place so awful as hell and not be grieved that multitudes are going there? How can we just not care? And here's the thing, going back to 1 John and the definition of love there and and. It's easy to say things with our lips. The Bible tells us not to love with just our lips, but in deed, in action, if we really love, it's going to drive us to action. We're going to do something about it. Just like that man I was telling you about the other day I was listening to. If he didn't love that dog, it wouldn't have fazed him one bit. It's the truth. We would all say yes to that. He would stop and then that dog would just run out and he'd be like, oh crap, let me go get this dog. That's not how he did though. Why? Because he loved his dog. So why is it so why is it we can say that we love sinners, but yet with our actions seem to not care? Paul's theme in these five verses here, chapter 9, has been the salvation of the lost sheep of Israel. Paul didn't want them to go to hell. He wanted to share with them the truth that his heart is broken for their condition and that he would do anything to see them saved by grace. It's like the old saying goes, people don't know how much you care until they... Well, I messed that up. How is it? Because somebody knows it. It just left me. Apparently, I wasn't supposed to say it. They don't, know, they don't know how much... You can say you care all day long. Here's what it comes down to. I'll just explain the saying. I can't tell you the saying, but I'll explain it. They don't know how much you care until they see you doing something about it. You can say it all day long. Nobody believes you until they see something. Yeah, I just wonder, does the world really think that we love them? Because it's going to take more than just a, I love you. You know? And that's what we see Paul doing right here. He's doing more than just say, well, guys, I, I do really love you. I, I, will you take this and read it? And then walk. 
No. And I'm not saying that we ought to give out tracts. We ought to tell people about Jesus. But, but you know what you ought to do before you go out? You ought to pray. Yeah. You ought to ask God to give you a burden for the lost. You ought to pray that God would break your heart over the same things that break His heart. When you go out, you'll have a different perspective, just like Paul is here. He's given us, he's putting things into perspective. You might have a bad day, but guess what? Somebody's going to hell. I'm not going to hell. I'm going to heaven. And I'm happy about it. And I'm thankful for it. And I ought to want other people to get what I've got. Sadly, I, I just, so much in our churches today, it's just like with what I was reading you from that message excerpt from David Wilkerson. The lips say one thing and the actions say something else. So I ask you this morning, what's in your heart? Are you burdened for the lost? If you're not child of God, you ought to be praying that God would give you that burden. How long has it been since you brought their names up to God? I'm going to tell you something. I might have needs in my life, and I do. I may have things going on with my body that I want to pray about, and I've got things. I'm going to tell you something, though. Lost and dying world is in a whole lot worse shape than I am. And I even take it so seriously that I ain't asking God to help me. Y'all don't get sideways on that. I'm just being honest. When's the last time you prayed for someone you know that's lost versus a physical ailment that you have? I know this ain't popular. Pray for the lost. We ought to have a burden for the lost. And my friend, if you are so isolated, if you're so isolated that you don't know anybody that's lost, you need to go find somebody. Because there's plenty out. But I dare say we all got somebody in our families that's lost. And like I said, if you don't, you need to go find somebody. Pray about it. It was something that I learned at Amazing Grace a long time ago, and I really liked it, and I ain't never done it here. But one year we, we got our one. And what I mean by that, we, we took one person that we could think of. I prayed for him all year long. I tried to get him to church all year. Just one, just one person. Every time I'd pray, I'd pray for him to get saved. Every time I'd see him, I'd witness to him about God. Just one person. We always ask the question, who's your one? Because we all should have one. At the very least. Now, I'll be honest with you, I've got a whole lot more than one. I got people I've talked to out in public. I don't know their names. I don't need to know their names. God knows where they are. So sometimes I pray for that guy I talked to over on the Greenway that May day in 2021. God knows him. 
But we ought to be finding people. We ought to be finding people. We ought to be witnessing to people. We ought to be, we ought to be showing that we care. Yeah. Yeah. How long has it been since you prayed for someone to get saved? And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying don't pray about your problems. We need to. God has... I'm just saying, let's have some perspective. If your prayer life is only full of God, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me, there's something wrong with your prayer life. If your prayer life is only, well, God, help this one. They've got this going on, and this one, they've got this going on, this one, they're sick, and all these people are saved, then there's something wrong. I know. I hope I've not made any enemies today, but I'm just being honest. This has so burdened my heart this week. We need to get serious. I've been in churches. I've been in churches. Not this one. But I've been in churches visiting where prayer time, the entire prayer time is... This person over here's got this going on. This person over here's got this going on. This person right here. This person. I ain't doing this, Bob. You know, all this stuff. They'll give all the prayer requests. Person to get up and pray. And here we are in church and not one person, not one person even makes mention of a lost world. The perspective is messed up if that's the case. I like what one man said. His mother would always say, well, let's, let's pray for the lost in the world. And he'd say, well, Mama, what do you mean by that? She said, well, I'm praying for all the ones nobody else is praying for. She said, because I just want to make sure all the lost are getting prayed for. I hope you understand I ain't trying to be ugly. We ought to take our wants, we ought to take our desires, we ought to take our needs to God. But there is a world around us that has a greater need than any one of us in here do. Unless you're lost. I do pray that God helps me. I've prayed, I've prayed a lot here lately about some personal needs. And, and I've prayed a lot about some physical needs in my own life, but I never approach the throne of grace without praying for a list of certain people that I know if they die today, they're going to split hell wide open. Yeah. I hope you understand where I'm coming from and I hope you understand I ain't trying to be ugly. My question today is, are you burdened for the lost? How long has it been since you wept for those who are lost? Maybe you need to pray this morning that God would not only give you a burden for the lost, but also give you Tears for the lost. You know, there's no better time or place than this altar this morning to take care of all of this. So let's stand and bow our heads and close our eyes. Miss Dawn, you come play for us.